Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. You'll find that on page 866 if you're using a copy of the Church Bible, and I know you're going to find it helpful to be reading along with me this morning as we look together at Luke 9, 1 through 17. And let me just briefly pray for us before we come to the preaching of God's Word. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would do a great and marvelous work among us. We pray, our God, that you would do a work in us, even such as you have not done before. We acknowledge, Lord, that unless you build the house, we labor in vain who build it. And so we acknowledge that unless you work in us by your spirit, even your word going forth and our minds being instructed will be in vain. And so, our God, we pray that you would take your truth and you would work it deep in us, that you would grant us the inner illuminating work of your spirit, that you would make us to understand the things that are proclaimed and to long to know the Lord Jesus and to come to him in faith and to be built up in him and to trust him more and to know you more through him. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would especially bless the preaching of your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 9, beginning in verse 1, and now Luke records for us, and Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On the return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had any need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more here than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And had them all sit down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I'm sure you've heard the stories about George Mueller, who was a minister in Bristol, England, in the early to mid-19th century. For 66 years, Mueller was a pastor of a Calvinistic Baptist church. He would go on to start an orphanage in 1834 at the age of about 31, 
And he would minister to 10,000 orphans in five orphanages that he started, in addition to the pastorate with which he pastored for 66 years, where he preached three times a day at many, many, in many respects. Um, when you read the accounts of George Mueller, uh, you wonder how in the world anyone could have done everything that he did. And he had a wife, and he lived with the orphans and took care of them. And one of the interesting facts, and one that you might know, he was a bit of an extreme man. He refused to take a salary, something that ministers should not do necessarily, uh, according to scripture. Um, But Mueller decided that his life would be one of prayer and faith. And so there are those great stories where the orphanage had run out of bread and there was nothing to feed the orphans with. And Mueller would begin to pray in the morning and people would just show up at the house and say, you know, I'm not even sure why I'm here. But I really feel like the Lord wanted me to bring some bread to you today. And I really felt like the Lord wanted me to bring you my meal tonight. He never asked anyone for anything. He didn't, uh, we, we talk about humble brag, he didn't humble fish for provisions. Um, he trusted the Lord. In one account, um, George Mueller said our money had been reduced to such an extent that our bread was hardly enough for the day. I had several times brought our need before the Lord after dinner when I returned thanks. I asked him to give us our daily bread, literally, that he would send us bread for the evening. While I was praying, there was a knock at the door. And after I had finished praying, a poor sister came in and brought us some of her dinner. And from another poor sister, five shekels. In the afternoon, she also brought us a large loaf. Thus, the Lord not only literally gave us bread, but also money. Uh, There's the other famous account, and it's perhaps the greatest of accounts about George Mueller. Uh, The children are very, very hungry. There is no food for them. And Mueller says to them, children, you know we're going to be late for school. Um, As the story goes, lifting his hand, he started to pray. He said, dear father, we thank you for what you're about to give us to eat. There's no food. He said, father, we're thankful for what you're about to give us to eat. And... Uh, a man comes knocking on the door, and he says, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt that you didn't have any bread for breakfast, and the Lord wanted me to bring you some. This is all, this is all real. This is not made up. Um, on the same day, after Mueller thanks the man, that almost as soon as that man left, another knock came on the door, and it was a milkman. And he announced that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage, and that all the milk would go bad if they didn't take it. Now, when I read accounts like this, I think, wow, what weak faith I have. What an awful Christian I am. I I think we should feel that way. I don't don't think we should read this and be like, good for him. Uh, We should read it and we should think, wow, this is a man that knew the God who provided This is a man that really trusted that the Jesus who said to pray for our daily bread is the God who who provides that daily bread. Now, that is an extremely important lesson. It's one that we need to learn every day of our life. It's one that we have to learn in ministry. It's one that you have to learn as Christians and as congregants, as people who are together serving in the kingdom of God, men and women who have been redeemed by Jesus and called to be at work in his vineyards and out in the harvest. This is a lesson that we have to learn on a daily basis. And it's a lesson that Jesus wanted the disciples to learn. It's very interesting. Jesus has been... 
schooling the disciples. He's been bringing them along in his ministry. He has been showing them all the miracles that he's been doing. There's a sense that you're supposed to take away as you read the early chapters of the Gospels that Jesus is doing everything that he's doing for the disciples so that they are there observing and watching him minister, but they're not really ministering with him. They are sort of one degree removed from him, one degree closer to him than the crowds, but they are just there along for the ride, as it were. And as Jesus is healing lepers and casting out demons, as Jesus is giving the lame their legs back, as he is raising the dead, as Jesus is doing all these messianic miracles that are attesting to who he is and why he came and why we should listen to him, the disciples are there as witnesses. Now, we enter in this morning on a new stage in Jesus's ministry, where in a special way now he is mobilizing the disciples for the very first time to go out and to be an extension of his ministry and to learn to do the things that he's doing. And in that sense, to extend his kingdom out and everything Jesus has already been equipping them for in a preparatory way, he is now allowing them in a preparatory way to go out and to begin to learn valuable lessons about trusting him for ministry. Now, this morning we're going to see three things. First, we're going to consider Jesus' commission to the disciples in the early verses here of chapter 9, especially verses 1 through 6. And then we're going to consider Jesus extending his ministry through the disciples uh, there down to verse 9. And then finally, we're going to consider Jesus reminding the disciples that he is the source of, and the provider for their ministries in verses 10 through 17. We'll notice that uh, Luke tells us that Jesus stops, as it were. He pulls away from the miracles. He pulls away from his ministry. He, he is now focusing his attention on the training of the 12. And Luke says, He called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, And do not take two tunics, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Now, this is the first messianic commission that Jesus is going to give the twelve that he has specially chosen. And one of the things that we have to remember here is that these are twelve relatively young men. They have never taken public speaking courses. They have been fishermen, tax collectors, political zealots and a host of other menial jobs. They have not gone to rabbinical schools. They don't, by any sense that we get as we read the Gospels, have any special gifts set about them to be agents of the advancement of the kingdom of God. They are ordinary people who don't have any resources in themselves, and yet they are the ones that Jesus says, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to do what I'm doing. I'm going to give you power to do what I'm doing. I want to make sure that you don't have enough with you when you go. I want to make sure that you don't have enough for it. And I want you to go and do exactly what I'm telling you. And it's going to be very uncomfortable. And in many respects, it's undesirable ministry. And this is the thing I want for you. Now, there are myriads of lessons here. Uh, One lesson would be, it doesn't matter how old or experienced someone is, God's kingdom isn't dependent on your age or experience. We make a great deal 
about old men being wise, young men being zealous. You need zeal, you need wisdom. Uh, In many respects, that doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. God's going to give all the zeal and all the wisdom, no matter what age a person is. George Mueller was 31 when he started that orphanage to care for 10,000 orphans, many of whom were locked up in prison under the age of eight because all of England could only take care of 8,000 orphans. He was 31. He was a young man. Um, Most of the people who God has used to fuel Reformation, to turn the world upside down, have been in their 20s. Um, We in America like to uh, adolesce. We like to, to, we like to treat our adults as adolescents. We like to raise the age of maturity. And we like to say, uh, you know what? At some point, you'll be ready when you've had enough experience behind you. And Jesus comes and he picks relatively young men. Again, these are men that there's no sense they've ever had a lesson at a rabbinical school. They have not been through all the special training, the seminary training. They have... They haven't, they've, they've been in the school of Jesus. Remember in the book of Acts, when Peter and John are preaching boldly and they're arrested and the Sanhedrin brings them in and they're, 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 they're interrogating them and they say to them, you know, what are you doing and, and why are you preaching to people in the name of Jesus and doing these miracles? And, and Peter and John bear witness that it's not them doing it, but that it's, it's Jesus doing it through them. And remember it says in Acts that the rulers and the leaders perceived that they were uneducated and untaught men, but they saw their boldness and they knew that they had been with Jesus. That's a massively important point. Jesus is sending them out and he's saying, now go without all of the expected prerequisites of what you think is necessary to be fruitful anywhere in life, and I am going to make you fruitful, but you're going to go. And it's going to be a multiplication of my ministry. And everything I've been doing in preaching and healing, you now are going to do. Now, let me say this this morning. There is something unique about the disciples' ministry. This is not a word, first and foremost, for you or me. Jesus does not send us out and say to every Christian, now go and preach the kingdom and miraculously heal. This is a unique word in redemptive history. This is a unique time in redemptive history. Anybody that reads the Bible, and especially the Gospels and the book of Acts, should be able to tell that this was no ordinary time. These are not ordinary occasions. Contrary to what many of our charismatic friends would like us to believe, these are extraordinary times. These are extraordinary measures. This is an extraordinary commission, and in a real sense, Jesus is is carrying on his messianic ministry now in sending the disciples out to these Galilean towns, and he is multiplying his own ministry through them. But one of the interesting things is that he tells us that the main work of the kingdom, and this is vital that we get this this morning, one of the lessons we do learn from this is that the main work of the kingdom is found in the ministry of the word, and ministries of mercy. Remember, Jesus has shown himself to be savior of spirits and bodies. He is both the savior of soul and body. Remember when he um, raised the little girl from the dead in the last account, he then said, now give her something to eat. 
Jesus was everywhere proclaiming the gospel, calling men and women to see their need for redemption, calling them to see their need for the forgiveness of sins, helping men men and women to see their need for him as savior. But he was also showing that he cared for people in their mercy needs, in their physical needs, in their material needs, in the everyday needs of their lives. And so he sends the disciples out. Notice he gives them power and authority, Luke says, over all demons. This is conflict. This is warfare. Pastoral ministry is warfare. This is a battle for the souls of men and women. When he sends the disciples out and gives them authority and power over demonic forces, he is saying he had come to plunder Satan's kingdom and to rescue for himself a people, that he would deliver a people and transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from the power of Satan into the power of God, into the kingdom of the Son of God's love, that what Jesus had done was come to plunder the evil one, to establish the kingdom of God. And notice, as he sends the disciples out to exercise authority over demonic influences, to cure diseases, he sends them out, Luke says, to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, uh, the disciples were to go out and they were to tell people in the old covenant church, that the kingdom of God had come, that the king had come, that God was here, uh, that everything that, that men were to be waiting for since the fall of man was now being fulfilled. Redemption had come. The kingdom was being manifest. Jesus would tell his own disciples that men would say, uh, look here and look there. And he said, don't say look here and look there. The kingdom is in your midst. Everywhere that Jesus stepped, that was the front line. That was the kingdom. Everywhere Jesus was, the kingdom was. And so everywhere the disciples now went proclaiming the message of the good news that God had come to redeem people and to forgive and to ransom people and to restore people was now being made known and spread not just from Christ himself but from his disciples. Now, there is the question about why he tells them not to take enough with them. This is so foreign to American Christianity. Now, if you don't understand that, I would like you, I welcome you to sit in one of our staff meetings that are extremely frustrating, where we talk about everything we don't have and try to figure out how we're going to do what we believe God has called us to do, but we don't have the resources to do or the manpower to do or anything else. And every week, we are recognizing that we don't have enough. And yet Jesus tells the disciples, I want you to go, and I don't want you to take enough with you. I don't want you to take any food. I don't want you to take any money. I don't want you to take an extra change of clothes with you. I want you to stay in the house of a stranger. I want this to sink in this morning and really get what Jesus is saying to the disciples. He's saying, I want you to know what ministry is. I want you to know that ministry is going to be uncomfortable. I want you to know that ministry is going to be inconvenient. And I want you to know that ministry is not going to be, in one sense, enjoyable. It's not going to be, it's not going to be this uh, self-aggrandizing thing. You're not going to get big salaries. It's going to be exhausting. And you're going to have to rely on other people. And you're going to have to trust me. Now, what's marvelous about this, and I don't want us to miss this this morning, is the disciples do what Jesus commands them to do. Because it's very easy for us to hear this sort of thing 
And, and I've already said to you, this was unique to the disciples, but here's what's not unique to us. If we are called to labor in Christ's kingdom, if we are being faithful as servants in his kingdom, if we are pouring out our lives in service to him, it's going to be uncomfortable, it's going to be inconvenient, and it's going to be full of uncertainty. Um, there's a sort of a beautiful picture here of God's sovereignty and our responsibility at work. Jesus commands them and tells them what to do. Jesus is going to show them that he's going to provide what they need, but they're going to have to trust him and they're going to have to obey him and they're going to have to step out when it's inconvenient, uncomfortable, and undesirable. Um, I would ask you this morning, when you think about ways that you're serving the Lord, uh, are you willing to do the inconvenient, uncomfortable, and undesirable? Because disciples of Jesus are called to that sort of ministry. Um, When you don't feel like you have time, when you're worn out, when your heart's really not in it, when you'd rather not get sweaty doing menial labor. You know, I want to just praise for a minute uh, the people in our church who have many times done very menial things without complaining. Um, Set up, break down. Now there's a change here. Now we have to do this. Now we've got to set up this building. Women have to wipe the uh, baby's uh, rear ends in nursery. Uncomfortable, inconvenient, undesirable ministry. And yet this is the ministry God calls us to. Letting somebody use our car when they don't have a car. Letting someone stay in our home when they need a place to stay. But it's not the best time. We just had short notice. It doesn't matter. Notice that Jesus says to the disciples, take nothing for your journey. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. There is an unexpected nature to ministry. They don't know what to expect. They don't know what kind of people they're going to meet. It would be very easy for them to say, you know what? This does not sound safe to me. This this whole thing does not sound safe. This sounds like a bad deal. I mean, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm thinking... Would I have obeyed Jesus if I was in that apostolic band? I don't know. I mean, I think if you sit there and you say, I would, you don't know your heart. He is asking them to trust him and to do what's undesirable and what's unexpected. Uh, Ken Hughes makes this great point as he develops that idea. He says, the disciples weren't to be concerned about their comfort in terms that are common today. They didn't go to another city because it didn't have a hot tub or it didn't have an air-conditioned doghouse. I like that he threw that in there, air-conditioned doghouse. Comfort-seeking can be an impediment to the gospel. I want that that little saying to register. Comfort-seeking can be an impediment to the gospel. Ken Hughes goes on. He says, no one was ever committed to Christ and the gospel who would boast of having lived a life of comfort. Now, there is a sense in which Jesus is not calling the disciples to look at their own ability or to look at their own inability. 
Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, now, if any of you have the gift set to do this, I want you to go. If any of you feel like you'd be better suited over here, I want you to go over here and anybody else come over here. Um, Jesus is essentially saying, are you available for ministry? He is asking the disciples to be available. Isn't that interesting? That's all he's asking. He's saying, I want you to be available. If you are going to be fruitful in my kingdom, you are going to have to be available to go into the uncomfortable, unexpected, and undesirable situations. And you're going to have to trust me that I'm going to take care of you in those situations. I imagine George Mueller did not find the orphanage always a delightful place to live in. I am sure that there was a great burden on him caring for thousands of orphans in his early 30s. And yet he stepped out in faith. Now, secondly, uh, Jesus is extending his ministry through the disciples. We've seen this already. We don't want to miss this. This is an extension of the, apostolic, of the messianic ministry. And what Jesus is doing, and this is such an amazing point, Jesus could only be in one place at one time. Now, in his divine nature, he's everywhere. In his human nature... His person was limited to one place at one time. Now what Jesus is doing for the first time is showing how his kingdom is going to echo out to the world. And this is the very beginning. He takes this little band and he says, now you're going to go out. And instead of one, there are going to be 13 of us ministering. And as you go and you make disciples, then they're going to go and they're going to make disciples. And as they go, they're going to make disciples. And this is the way the kingdom advances. And this is the way Jesus ministers in the world. Um, people are enamored with the idea that Jesus might come to them in a dream. And they, they might see some bright, glowing, vague figure coming at them saying, I'm Jesus, follow me. And what's more amazing is that he would use you or me to reach people. It is more amazing that Jesus would say, I'm going to use someone like Nick or someone like you to advance my kingdom. Full of sin. Remember, I've always taken great comfort in these disciples. They grumble about who's the greatest. You'll see that at the end of this chapter and at the end of the gospel again. They're always arguing about who's the greatest. Now, I'm definitely greater than Peter. Definitely. I mean... These, these guys are a mess. They're arguing about who's the greatest. Uh, Peter denies Jesus on multiple occasions. Uh, James and John are hot-headed. That's why they're called the sons of thunder. They want to call down fire on the cities that reject Jesus. Let's just destroy those wicked cities right now, Jesus. Um, they, they ask Jesus if they can get to the top. Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Forget about these schmoes down here, Peter and them. We want to be at the top. Um, don't miss that. Jesus is picking very ordinary, very sinful people. And he's saying, I am going to use you, and my kingdom is going to be advanced through you as you obey me, and as you go out to the undesirable and the uncomfortable places, and you do what I'm telling you to do, and you trust me to go. Um, now, you have to remember all the miracles that the apostles are going to do. Every miracle you read about in Luke and in the and book of Acts, Jesus is doing those through them. They're not doing any of them on their own power. When Peter and John healed the lame man at the beautiful gate in Acts chapter 5, and, and the people come and they rush up 
to them and they're excited about it because here's this man they knew was lame and now he's leaping and jumping and praising God. And they say, look, it's not by our own power or godliness that we did this. This man, by faith in Jesus's name, is, he stands before you whole. It was all Jesus working through them. Any power that they had now, any authority they had, any ability that they had, Christ had worked that in. It was coming from him. He's the vine. They are the branches. We are the branches. He is the vine. Any ability that we have for ministry, any fruit that's born in your life is exclusively because Jesus is working through you. Any real fruit is exclusively because the living Christ is working in us and through us. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, the great evangelical scholar, said all the miracles wrought by the twelve were really wrought by Jesus himself. Their sole function consisted in making a believing use of his name. This seems to have been perfectly understood by all, for the works done by the apostles did not lead the people of Galilee to wonder who they were, but only who and what he was, in whose names all these things were being done. Now, this is marvelous, and and don't miss this this morning. It is very easy for us to say, you know what, I'll do the uncomfortable, I'll do the undesirable, I'll go out into the unexpected, and then to do that for our own glory and reputation. It's very easy. Um, It's very easy to want to serve for reputation. But these disciples go out, and the only thing that matters is if the name of Jesus is being advanced and exalted. And now this is marvelous. Notice this. There's this There's this little interruption between verse 6 and then the feeding of the multitudes in verse 10. All of this goes together. And there's this seemingly disconnected interruption about Herod, the Tetrarch, who had beheaded John the Baptist. And, and you're wondering, how does this fit here? Well, here's how it fits. Notice verse 7. Notice what Luke says. Now, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening. Well, what is Luke talking about? I think he's talking about all that now the disciples are doing and Jesus is doing through them, that, that the fruit that God is bearing through them is even amounting to the fact that rulers are hearing about it. And notice the end. Notice this. Herod sought to see Jesus. What God's people were doing, what the disciples were doing, had such an impact everywhere that they went that the rulers of the nation were hearing about it and they understood it was Jesus doing it through them and they wanted to see for themselves who he was. Now, Herod didn't want to see who Jesus was savingly. He had a bothered conscience. Herod's conscience troubled him because he killed John the Baptist. He was sleeping with his brother's wife. He was a very, very wicked man and he wasn't coming to Jesus for salvation, but, but he wanted to sort of Uh, have his own curiosity itched about who is this miracle worker that everybody's talking about. But the point is, when God is working in us, when Christ is working through his people, when we are obeying him and going out and doing the things that he commands us and, and seeking to advance his kingdom, the word about this spreads and the kingdom advances. Now, um, There's also a picture here, isn't there? The disciples could have easily um, been stomped out. Herod could have sent 
soldiers right at this point and said, whatever these guys are doing, whoever they are, make them stop. He could have done that very easily. They'll send soldiers to take Jesus at the end of the gospel. They'll crucify him. They'll come and arrest the apostles in in the book of Acts on many occasions. Why at this point does Herod respond the way he does and he doesn't send out soldiers to arrest the disciples? Well, I think it's because uh, the one who empowers us keeps us. You see, that means when we go into the unexpected and the undesirable and we're worried about our, because that's the main thing we're worried about. Let's just be honest. We love the Second Amendment because we're worried about our safety. Let's just all be honest and say we care far too much about our safety. I'm not making a statement about guns at all. I did not. If you heard me making one, I did not. I'm making a point that we all want to be comfortable and safe, and that hinders kingdom ministry. When we want to be comfortable and we want to be safe, and so we pull back from ministry because we don't want to go to the undesirable, we don't want to go to the uncomfortable, we don't want to go to the unexpected, and we don't want to minister in those ways, then we don't get the fruit, the kingdom doesn't advance, and we don't realize that the one who empowers us also keeps us. You see, this is an internship for the disciples. They are Jesus' interns, and he's saying, do what I say and watch me work. Now, Jesus says that to us this morning. He says to you, if you trust me and you do what I tell you in my word, and your desire is to see the kingdom advance, and you're willing to go out unto the undesirable, unlikely, uncomfortable, watch how I equip you, watch how I empower you, watch how I protect you. And now, thirdly, Jesus reminds the disciples that he is the source of ministry. Watch how I provide for you. Now, I don't want us to look in any great detail this morning at the feeding of the 5,000, but here Jesus has pulled back with the disciples. They've told him everything that's happened. They come back together, and Jesus withdraws from them so they can sort of refill spiritually, So they can have rest and spiritual refreshment and times of quiet and communion. And no sooner do they do it, the crowds come. And the very easy thing to do is what the disciples suggest. I think this is a huge rebuke to us. The disciples are tired. They're also excited because they've realized how the Lord works in them when they go. And the easy thing to do would be like, send these people home, they can all go take care of themselves. I think there is a subtle but important word there for us. I think when we start looking at church our size, we lack a lot of resources, we um, would like to do more ministry effectively, Um, it's easy to get worn out when you are serving in the unenjoyable and uncomfortable ways. Um, And the easy thing to do is to say, I'm done. No more. We don't need to do that. And notice how Jesus deals with them. The, the The crowds come. The disciples say in verse 12, send the crowd away and go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we're here in a desolate place. And then notice how Jesus deals with them. Verse 13, he says, you give them something to eat. Now, This passage is not teaching a cute children's story about how Jesus shared his lunch and how you should share your lunch. 
if I'm sorry to be the harbinger of bad news if you were raised in a church that taught you that in Sunday school. He is not teaching. Jesus shared his lunch. You should share your lunch. Um, he is not giving us a story that can be explained away naturalistically. Here, this little boy gave Jesus his, his few fish and his few loaves, and so Jesus began to break them in little pieces to give the disciples, and everybody else saw what Jesus was doing, so they were like, ah, I guess I'll share my lunch too. And then everybody shared their lunches. That's not what happened. Here is the creator God who created the world out of nothing, who spoke the world into existence, who said, let there be light, and there was light. I, I, frankly, I don't care how scientific you are or what kind of nonsense you've bought into. God spoke the world into existence, and here he is, and he's telling his disciples, give them something to eat, and they don't have anything for 5,000 people. And notice, they, they start to do the math. We have five loaves and two fish, and I mean, unless we go into the town and get more food, we're never going to be able to do this. And so Jesus begins to instruct them. Now, there is a word here for us. They have already forgotten who he is. They have already forgotten all the miracles he's done. They have already forgotten what just happened in going out without enough resources and coming back and realizing he had provided for them. They've forgotten everything. It is, it's amazing. It's amazing how quickly we get spiritual amnesia. It is amazing. It is like that. They've forgotten everything. And so Jesus begins to instruct them. Notice he says, have all the people sit down in groups of 50. Now, why? Why 50? If you're one of those people like me and you try to find a theological reason in everything, you're probably going to be disappointed. I think Jesus had them sit down in groups of 50 because you could easily count up how many people were there to bear witness to the greatness of the miracle. And I think it's a very practical reason. I think he had them sit down in groups of 50 so that the disciples now could effectively and manageably minister the supernatural work that he was doing to the people in a manageable way. And so Jesus tells them exactly what to do. And notice, he had, they had them all sit down, and then Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish. He did five things. He took... He looked up to heaven, he prayed over them, he broke them, he gave them to his disciples. Now, there is significance in everything that Jesus does here. Um, by the way, one theologian said, you know, if Jesus had taken a bag of grain seed and had thrown it in the ground and it miraculously sprouted up so they could feed the people, people would easily say, Nah, there's a natural way we could explain this. But when he takes fish and bread and he begins to break, and I had never thought about this. I don't know how long it would have taken Jesus to do this miracle, but he just stands there and just keeps breaking. Maybe half an hour, maybe an hour. He just stands there and he just keeps breaking. And there's just more bread and there's just more fish. Out of nothing, he's just multiplying after he's thanked his father for every provision, and then note the important detail, he gives it to his disciples. Now, Jesus could have easily multiplied the fish and the bread and had everybody come up to him and take it directly from him. He could have said, have the people line up, 
and they come to me, and I'll take it directly from them. But he said, no, you are going to minister to the people. And even though you have nothing, I am going to give you everything that you need, and I'm going to supply for you out of your lack, and I am going to, in an unexpected, unlikely way, give you everything you need to do the work of ministry. Um, I wonder, as I look at a passage like this, how influenced George Mueller was by this. Um, that he could, knowing the absolute sovereignty of God, he knew, he, he often wrote in his diary that he knew just how in control of every single thing God was. That he could pray with that sort of faith that the Lord would multiply the bread and he would get knocks on the door randomly, people just bringing the bread at the very moment he's praying. It's the same lesson Jesus is teaching here. Um, you know, there is a word here for those that don't believe in Jesus' miracles. Um, one, actually, atheist, uh, who uh, one point in the UK took on a number of other atheists for trying to de-supernaturalize the Bible, uh, realizing that the Bible indeed taught that these are real miracles that the Son of God did, said, if Jesus can't do that, no one should listen to him. Um, here is the Son of God incarnate. And he's saying, trust me. Trust me to provide as you go out, as I make you fruitful, as I equip you and empower you and enable you, and go. Now, um, we are not going to see um, any bread or fish supernaturally multiplied today. You're not. We'll go eat some good food that a lot of people had to prepare. We'll sit at tables that a lot of people had to set up. We will enjoy a meal together from God's provision. Um, but the point of this passage is that this Jesus would go to the cross and he would have his body broken apart in judgment for our sin. Just like he broke the bread, his body would be broken in judgment. He would hang on the tree until all of the lifeblood flowed out of him. All of the wrath of God was satisfied on him and put out and extinguished on him. All of your sin atoned for on him. And he would provide perfect salvation that you have nothing in your hands to contribute to. The only thing we contribute to that is our sin. And now he calls you to carry that gospel out. And through word and deeds of mercy, in going to undesirable places unexpected places and uncomfortable places and people, Jesus says, I want you to be fruitful because I want to go there and I want you to know that I will provide for you and that everything I did at the cross, everything I did in the resurrection is what provides for you to make you fruitful in ministry. Um, I want to ask you this morning, when you take an inventory of your Christian life and, and especially your life of service in the kingdom, um, where do you fall on um, obeying the Lord Jesus in going and being zealous for his name? Are you, are you more on the I'll just be comfortable and safe and protected side? Or are you stepping out and saying, I will go where it's not comfortable, where it's difficult, where it's unlikely and unexpected? Am I going? And when I don't have the resources, 
Am I responding like the disciples and saying, great, don't need to do this then. We don't have the resources. That was their naturalistic response. Or are we going to say with George Mueller, the Lord can provide. God can open the floodgates of heaven. He can make the world out of nothing. He could provide salvation by the most unlikely means, by an accursed, beaten, mocked, rejected man nailed to a tree for the sins of his people. He would provide everlasting life. Am I trusting him? Am I trusting him when I'm tired? And am, am I trusting him when I've forgotten? Am I going back to him for all of the empowerment and all the equipment that I need? Let him who has ears to hear this morning. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to see all that we have in the Savior. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that we are all far too often like the disciples, that we often forget who you are. We often fail to trust you uh, when you tell us to go forward, to not grow weary in well-doing to pour out our lives in the advancement and the service of your kingdom. Father in heaven, we pray that you would motivate us by your grace and by a new sight of the Lord Jesus, that you would remind us of him who spoke the world into existence and who poured out his life on the cross for our sins. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would restore us and revive us, that you would increase our faith and that you would give us a renewed zeal to go to the unlikely and uncomfortable places and to do ministry when we feel as though we don't have enough resources. Lord, would you have mercy on us and help us to that end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.